Psalm 3, <clears throat> which we are informed is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Psalm 3. Jehovah, how are mine adversaries increased? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there are that say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But thou, O Jehovah, art a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. I cry unto Jehovah with my voice, and he answereth me out of his holy hill. Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for Jehovah sustaineth me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of the people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Jehovah, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongeth unto Jehovah. Thy blessing be upon thy people. Selah. Let me just remind you where we're at, or rather, where David is at. We've been speaking on the life of David for a while. But let me just remind you the, the last few verses in the 17th chapter of 2 Samuel. And it came to pass when David was come to Mahanaim. This, of course, is in his flight from Absalom, his son. That Shobai, the son of Nahash of Rabbah, of the children of Ammon, and Machir, the son of Amiel, of Lodibar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite of Rogelim, brought beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley and meal and parched grain and beans and lentils and parched pulse and honey and butter and sheep and cheese of the herd for David and for the people that were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. We pointed out last week that it appears that David has here by God's grace been given a little bit of a respite from this flight from his own son, Absalom. As Absalom desires and seeks to take the crown, take the throne from his own father, and even to take his father's very life. And so David has been given this opportunity of reflection, this opportunity for retrospection and introspection to meditate. <clears throat> Whenever I use that word, I wonder how often I make the effort to meditate. It's somewhat of a lost practice, but here I believe David was meditating and very likely, at least it's possible that he wrote this psalm at this time or more likely, I suppose, that he wrote it as he reflected upon these circumstances at this time when he found himself with this small band of followers in Mahanium. But nonetheless, we're told under inspiration that David wrote this when he fled from Absalom, his son. And he begins this psalm, he begins this cry, as he uses the word crying in a little, a little bit later. But he says, Jehovah, how are mine adversaries increased? Many there are that rise up against me. 
Surely when he utters those words, he is reminded of how the Lord spared him in past times. He's reminded of how insignificant numbers have been over the years of his flight from King Saul. As Saul, in his jealousy and rage, sought his life at that time. But numbers mean nothing to God. God demonstrates that again and again in the case of Gideon and many others. Numbers simply don't mean anything to God. He can, he can do his will, and he does his will, with a few as well as with multitudes. Numbers mean nothing to him. David goes on in this psalm, saying, Many there are that say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. Many there are. There's no help. These are saying to him that there's no help for you in God. Many, he says, that say of his soul, that say of him. You think God's going to save you again? You think God's going to come to your defense? You think he's going to bring you out of this? Have you ever been in that place? Have you ever been in that place, as we said last week, between a rock and a hard place, where you wonder, you wonder what's going to happen. You wonder, and your faith is challenged. Your hope in God is questioned by yourself because of these circumstances. We think of the Psalm 42 where David cried out a few times, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Surely he may have been uttering those words at this time too. Why? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope thou in God. He tries to challenge himself. He does challenge himself to bring his faith back up. To remind himself of God's goodness and his promises and his mercy and his power. Hope in God, he says. And it reminds us of that one that David types in so many cases. The son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, crying from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Lamenting, crying out. And there were those that came to the foot of the cross and they taunted him, did they not? Saying he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires him. He trusted in God. Now see where he's at. Now look at where he's at. But David goes on saying, I cry unto Jehovah with my voice. I cry unto him, and he answereth me. His faith is being lifted up. He says he answers me out of his holy hill. I cry unto him. And he has reminded himself already, but thou, O Jehovah, art a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. He reminds himself of the many times that God did, in fact, lift him up. The many times that he did preserve him, he lifted him up. He is his glory. He is the lifter up of his head. And he has delivered him. He's that shield. He's that rock of refuge. He's that high tower. David is praying unto God. When he says these things, he answers me out of his holy hill. He heard God's voice evidently answering this cry, this prayer that he cries unto his God. Faith, even as he cries, being enlarged, being encouraged, 
Oh, Lord, increase our faith. The apostles cried, and so do we. Though a sinner, though a sinner, as we all are, he knows through faith, through that gift of God, faith, he knows that he can still appeal to God, and God will answer him. He knows his sin. It's been pointed out to him. And he knows that he is being chastened because of his sin, because God told him that through Nathan the prophet. And he knows that. And yet still, he can cry unto Jehovah. He can appeal to his God, and God will answer him. We're reminded of the, of the one that stood, the, the, the publican that stood alongside the Pharisee in the temple and beat his breast and cried, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And here we can imagine very easily David saying again, he's crying unto God, God be merciful to me, the sinner, the great sinner. And have we not each of us felt that through our walk in the faith, through our life with Christ, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I laid me down and slept. He was able to actually lay down and sleep. He lay down and he slept. He awaked for Jehovah. His God sustained him and gave him a time of rest and sleep. But he, he intimates that he is able to lay down and sleep because his mind and his heart were at peace with God after he utters these cries unto him. And he's able to say, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of the people that have set themselves against me round about. He's, been, he's received the report that Absalom has gathered up thousands getting ready for a great assault against his own father. But David is able to say, I will not be afraid because God, because Jehovah is my God and he has redeemed me. He cries, arise, O Jehovah, save me. Oh my God, my God. Underline that personal nature, my God. He's able to cry through that faith that God has given him. And he's reminding himself, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. He reminds himself of the days past, some of that retrospection. God has done this for me, and he's brought me out of that horrible pit, and he's rescued me at that time and that time. You remember when he was walking on one side of the hill or mountain and he uttered those words that surely he was not far from death. And Saul was on the other side of the mountain. Neither one of them knew where the other was and yet they were, they were marching with their men. David greatly outnumbered in that case and they would eventually meet. But what happened? God implemented salvation through word being brought to Saul that the Philistines had attacked some of his people in another place and he had to break up his camp and hasten to rescue his people there and David was spared. He says that Jehovah has smitten all his enemies on the cheekbone. Salvation belongs unto Jehovah. Indeed it does. 
Thy blessing be upon thy people. Selah. Selah, there's discussion about what that word means, and no one is certain, and yet it's suggested strongly by many that it means something along the lines of pause, be silent, consider, reflect, meditate. You utter these words, you sing these words, you remind yourself of these truths, and then you meditate upon the grace of God, his sovereign power, and how that he has chosen you, and he has delivered you many times in the past, and he is well able to deliver you again. Be, pause, be silent, pause, consider, reflect, meditate. Be still and know that I am God. He's saying to himself, we can easily imagine. Salvation belongeth unto Jehovah. Even as Job was able to cry, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Don't be concerned about the things that your eye sees so much. Consider what your heart sees through the gift of faith. David is teaching us. He reminds himself here, I believe, of God's sovereignty and salvation. And he reminds himself of his great love. That love that he placed upon himself, upon David, and each of his people from before the foundation of the world. So we might, we might say, well, it was kind of a no-brainer, wasn't it? That David would cry unto his God? Where else would he turn? What else would he think of doing? Well, I believe each of us can probably confess, as I have, crying unto God isn't always, hasn't always been the first thing that we do. And it's sad to say that, but it's honest to say that our first thoughts may be, how can I get myself out of this? What can I do? And we don't cry unto the Almighty God, our Father, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Creator, but we think about what can we do? We may have on occasion failed to make God our first resort in time of difficulty. God's people have ignorantly and many times Resorted to false gods. Perhaps you say, I don't have any statues in my house. I don't have any images. What are you talking about? These false gods. Have we ever in a time of, of fright, in a time of supposed peril, being, as I said, between that rock and a hard place, have we ever, in our difficulty, turned to the gods of chance? Turn to the gods of fate, of fortune, of destiny. This is what drew God's complaint that's recorded for us in, in Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. Listen to what God has to say about this behavior. In 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. But ye that forsake Jehovah speaking through his prophet. Ye that forsake Jehovah, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for fortune, this God fortune, and that fill up mingled wine unto destiny. 
Now I realize that every translation doesn't use those words and perhaps your, your margins will help you in that. But these are references to gods of fortune, gods of deity. And he says, I will destine you to the sword and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, he did not answer. When I called in my providence, when I put you between that rock and a hard place, you didn't cry unto me. But you called upon these false gods that aren't able to deliver you. Fortune is defined for us as a hypothetical or personified power that unpredictably determines events or issues favorably or unfavorably. Great idea. Go to those gods. Unpredictable, favorable or unfavorable. Good idea. Go to them. Is anything really accidental and unintended happening? Does ever anything truly ever happen by accident, considering God's power and God's providence and God's perfect will? There are no such things as accidents. Was it chance, we ask, was it chance that a caravan of Ishmaelites was passing by the very time Joseph's brethren were plotting against his life. It was a means of sparing Joseph's life. They took him back up out of the pit and they sold him. Hey, let's make a little money out of this while we're at it. They sold him to these, this caravan of Ishmaelites that were passing by just by accident. Joseph explains this or exposit this, the reality of this to his brothers when they came in the last chapter of Genesis before him as he sat second only to Pharaoh and they were afraid of what he might do to him for what they had done to him. But Joseph in love and even weeping at times pointed out to his siblings, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. You see what he's saying there. Even though you intended it for evil, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you did a good thing. But God meant it for good. And it turned out for good. That all the people might be brought to Egypt eventually and saved from the drought and from the famine. You meant it for evil. We do things even when they're meant for evil. And yet God uses them for good. There's a wonderful, a blessed harmony between prayer and providence. God has harmonized them. Even as James brings together more clearly, not to Luther's satisfaction, but brings together the harmony that actually exists between James and Paul in the matter of faith and works. So there's a harmony between God's providence and between prayer. Consider the prayer that we looked at a number of months ago in the life of David. Consider that prayer of David to God when it was reported to him that his counselor Ahithophel had turned, was a turncoat and was in the camp of his son Absalom. And David cries unto God, O Jehovah, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. We read later 
A couple of chapters later, Absalom and all his men, all the men of Israel said, when Absalom was considering which way he should go, how he should operate, his, his military options, and Ahithophel gave him really a brilliant plan. Gave him a brilliant plan. David's friend Hushai was there, and he gave him a different plan that was really foolish. And yet, Absalom listened to Hushai. In God's providence, he had placed Hushai there that he might give this. And he had ordained, we're told, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better, Absalom said, than the counsel of Ahithophel. For God had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that Jehovah might bring evil upon Absalom. It was God's will. It was God's purpose. To do so. Was David's prayer answered? Yes. And no. Did it change God's plans? No. God determined, had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, we're told in the scriptures. Was it that God used Hushai. Could he have done it without Hushai? Of course. But even as he used Hushai as one of the means in his providence to defeat Absalom, to bring evil upon Absalom, so he used David's prayer. Did he need either? Did he really need Hushai? Did he really need David's prayer? No. He had appointed them both as means. Somebody wrote a book, titling it, a book about prayer, the title of which is, If God Already Knows, Why Pray? Well, there are many reasons. What is the purpose of prayer? To use Paul's language from Romans 3, much, every way. And yet God doesn't need prayer. God is omniscient, he's omnipotent. And everything works according to his perfect will. And he has made those determinations from the beginning. A man named A.W. Tozer, some of you probably are familiar with that name, speaks about this attribute of God. Some theologians have turned it, the, called it the aseity of God. The aseity. One of those $10 words, you know. What it simply means is self-sufficient. I don't know why they couldn't just say self-sufficient. But they've coined a word to tell us that God is absolutely independent of all things. He is self-sufficient. That's what this aseity is. It's God as its root. The Latin say, S-E. We may think of when we use the Latin expression per se, which means in itself. God is absolutely complete in himself. He doesn't need anything beside himself. Tozer, as I mentioned, in his 1961, well known by this title, publication, Knowledge of the Holy, says this about this matter. He says, Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support 
God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need our prayers. He requires us to pray. But as he need him? No. He required, in this case, Hushai, but did he need him? No. Tozer goes on. He says, the picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what you see. That's what we see. This idea that God needs us for some reason. Oh, he was lonely. He needs us. God doesn't need us. He has determined to save us, to save a multitude as the sand on the seashore, but he doesn't need us. We need to differentiate these things. Man believes that he's necessary to God, but he isn't. Going back to David. Going back to David. What good did prayer do? Much every way we have intimated. It encouraged David's faith. When we pray, and we should pray, and we must pray. The only point that I'm making is that it doesn't change God. God is unchangeable, immutable. He changes not. His compassions, they fail not. He is unchangeable. Who does prayer change? It changes the prayer, the one who prays, does it not? Here in this case, it encouraged David's faith. It taught his faith. It reminded him of much every way. Reminded him of all that God had done for him in the past, as I suggested already. He has been his shield, and he has defeated his enemies. He's been the uplifter of his head again and again. He lifted up David's head when Goliath vowed to take it off. God lifted it up. He preserved David, as I've already intimated, from Saul on many occasions. Almost too numerous to mention. So who does it change? It affects the intercessor, the one who's praying. And how does it change? It increases our faith. Especially when we pray God's own promises. It increases our faith to do so the next time. And what about others? What about those who may witness with their ears or their eyes that we are praying and that we have prayed for such and such? And then they see it come to pass. Yes, it was already going to come to pass because God's will doesn't change. But they may not understand that, and yet they see. And so they're affected by the prayers of God's people when they pray. Does it not, therefore, and through that magnify the name of God? It changes people. It changes the one, the intercessor, as I've said. Does it not redound to God's glory? Does it not resound? his glory and magnify his name does God need our prayers he has determined all things nothing's going to happen apart from his determination we looked at that last week the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God even in the case of his own only begotten son yes wicked hands crucified him but it was by the determinate 
counsel and foreknowledge of God. So why should we pray? I think there's an excellent passage in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel in, in chapter 36. That points us in the direction that we ought to go. 36 and at verse 22. In this passage, this is the passage that contains that blessed promise. In 26, a new heart will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you. And we go through this litany, if I can call it that. Of all these I wills. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will be your God. I will save you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree. I will do this. I will do that. These are determined counsels of God. I will. Not you will. But I will do these things. But then he reminds his people. He reminds us. In verse 37 about the matter of prayer. He says thus saith the Lord Jehovah. For this. All these things. For this. Will I be inquired of by the house of Israel. To do it for them. I will be inquired of by my people. To do it for them. Prayer is for us. Prayer is to encourage our faith. It's to lift us up, to be the uplifter of our heads. I will be asked for these things that I've already determined to do. But you don't necessarily know that unless your faith is looking at one of my promises. But I have determined to do them, but nevertheless... I will have you to ask me for them. Prayer and providence. Prayer and God's promises. Praying the promises of God. Again, I refer to Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. Those promises. The new covenant promise of salvation. For his people, that great promise. And and part of that, God's dealings with his people, is that that call, even Christ, when he begins his preaching, he's preaching the gospel of repentance and faith. He calls people to repentance. And in Luke 13, except you repent, ye shall all perish. Except you repent. People don't like that. There aren't very many people that I've ever run across professing Christians and true Christians alike that don't find that very distasteful except you repent. All elected unto eternal life will repent. For God will give them repentance. It's a gift as faith is a gift. God will give them repentance unto life. Is our repentance then the cause of our salvation? No. And yet God is not going to save us except we repent. We will perish, Christ said himself. It's a means that God has appointed and that he gives. He gives repentance. He brings people to repentance. Even as he gives faith to believe. 
And yet he requires us to believe. He requires us to repent and believe. And prayer is one of those means that God has given us as well. You remember at the end of the book of Acts, when the ship, the ship was floundering, the ship that was carrying Paul and a number of others, eventually to Rome, and it's breaking up. And Paul had said that they will be saved. He saw in a vision, a dream, that they will be saved. And he told the crew and he told the people with him, they will be saved. And yet when it came to his attention that there were a lot of the sailors, most of them that were in a, a, a lifeboat, the, that must be what it was, they were, they were getting ready to abandon ship. And what does Paul say to the captain? Stop them, except these abide in the ship. You cannot be saved. He just got done telling them a little while earlier that the whole, everybody's going to be saved. There won't be any loss of life. And yet he says now, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Because it's one of the means that God has appointed. And so the captain cut the ropes and caused that boat to drop in the water without those men being in it. And they were saved. We aren't to be guided by providence. Providence, more often than not, is something retrospective. I mean, something that we look at and say, wow, you know, that came to pass because God promised this. We're not to be guided by providence. We're to be guided by the word of God. I think of David and Abishai and how that when a couple of occasions they could have slain Saul and been delivered from his wrath, David had two opportunities at least to do that. And in both cases, his nephew, Abishai, was with him. And in both cases, Abishai was the tempter and said, let me take off his head. David said, no, no, you can't do that. Why? Because the word, because God has spoken, this is his anointed, Saul, his anointed. And David could not take his life and would not. And yet providence seemed to lay it right before him. That was Abishai's argument. God's delivered him into your hand. Cut his head off. No. I'll be guided by the word. Not, not by providence. Providence is a display, a demonstration of God's sovereignty over all things. Thomas Manton has said one way to get comfort. One way to get comfort is to plead the promise of God in prayer. Show him his handwriting. God is tender of his word. God doesn't make promises without meaning and intending and being able to fulfill them. He's tender of his word. Show him his handwriting. Plead the promise of God in prayer. God has promised to save all for whom Christ lived and died. Pray for a grand revival. Show him his handwriting, as we've said in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. Show him his promise of reviving a great people, even through that illustration of those dead bones in, uh, in Ezekiel 37, that picture that was given. Pray our Father's promises back to him. Cry unto him, build your church, you promised. 
Save sinners, you've promised. Grant great and grand Holy Spirit revival. You've promised. Pray those prayers. And when they happen, please don't just say, oh, how lucky that was. But remind yourself, God promised and he even caused me to ask him for it. Blessed be Jehovah that hath given rest unto his people Israel. We read Solomon speaking in 1 Kings chapter 8. According to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise. Which he promised by Moses his servant. He promised he will accomplish. He will fulfill. All men are liars, perhaps. God's not a liar. And he's promised to do these many things. Reflection informs us that God brings about the very prayer for that which he intends to do. Even as he brings his hush eyes, even as he brings individuals, even as he brings a caravan of Ishmaelites, even as he does all these things, so he brings us to our knees in prayer. For the things that he intends to do. We understand that God employs second causes. To bring about his primary determinations. Prayer is one of those secondary causes. He is determined to do something. And he will bring prayer into it many times. As one of those secondary causes. To bring his determinations to pass. And these are ordained to magnify his grace, to magnify his name. Prayer, we mentioned last week, one of the Puritans using the expression about the wheels of providence, God's will. Prayer is one of those wheels. We need to resist the temptation to separate the action of praying from the matrix of other actions and events in which it is said, a matrix we're told in the dictionary is that which in with something originates. Have not all providences originated from God? That's what we've been trying to say last week and today. Have not all providences originated from God? Is that not the matrix in which prayer is set along with these other secondary causes? Prayer is one of those providences. The writer of Proverbs 16, probably or possibly anyway, Solomon himself, uttered these words, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of Jehovah. We might roll the dice, to put it in colloquial terms, but the matter is through the determinate counsel of God himself. One has very wisely written, saying the things that are come to pass depend upon a very complicated chain of causes consisting of innumerable links. And there are times that we're able to look back. We're able to look back. How did this come to be? How did this blessing happen? How did this trial happen? And we look back and we often, if we do that, another reason meditation is so good for us, we look back and we see all these links of the chain of God's providences that brought this to be. But he says, consisting of innumerable links which are quite out of the reach of our view, 
but are every one of them under the eye and in the hand of God. Nothing shall befall us, but according to the will of him that loves us better than we do ourselves and knows infinitely better what is good for us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth those that fear him. He loves us more than we can even comprehend. And he knows us and knows what's good for us more than we can comprehend. What is chance to man is the appointment of God. Write that down on your hard drive of your brain. What is chance to man is the appointment of God. Joseph Hart said prayer was appointed to convey the blessings God designs to give. Prayer was appointed as a conveyance, a means, a secondary means to convey the blessings God has determined, already designed to give. That's what Joseph Hart was saying. Prayer appointed to convey blessings already determined upon by our God. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee and praise thee for thy sovereign love, thy sovereign will, thy sovereign power, thy solemn knowledge, thy sovereign knowledge. O Lord our God, we thank thee and praise thee. When we consider all these things, we stand back crying, what is man? What are we? that thou hast set thy love upon us, that thou hast determined to save any. And why me, Lord? Why, have thou, why, hast, why hast thou chosen me? Why hast thou chosen anyone? We thank thee and praise thee for thy providence and thy determinate counsel in our salvation. And we thank thee for the, the glorious and grand primary means that thou hast used even our Lord Jesus Christ, his precious blood. We thank thee and praise thee, O Lord our God, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Just stand, please, for the benediction. I confess it's a repetition, but it just seemed like a perfect benediction. The last verse of the third psalm. Salvation belongeth unto Jehovah. Thy blessing be upon thy people.